If you have your Bibles, go with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 will be there, and Mark chapter 15 for most of today. We've been on this journey asking this question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Was it something that I simply needed to mentally agree with some years back, maybe when I walked that aisle or maybe said some prayer or signed a card at a rally or or maybe for you, the, the gospel has something to do with Jesus, a cross, maybe something to do with bad things, but maybe you don't understand much beyond that. What is the gospel? We've been trying to answer this question over the past three weeks, and we'll continue for the next two We began with the authority of the words of Christ, that when Christ speaks, His words are authoritative. We gave examples of that as we walked through. Again, we're kind of doing a quick overview of the book of Mark. And so in the beginning, we see where Christ has authority to heal broken bodies, to say be healed, to to, to. To rid the body of illness and brokenness. He can fix and heal broken bodies. Unlike a a physician in our day, he can do it with the speaking of his words. We also talked about how he had the authority over creation, like the authority to calm the storm. To say, winds be still, waves stop crashing. And then, kind of at a climax, we see that he has the authority to forgive someone of their sins. And the religious leaders understood what Jesus was doing at that point. He was claiming to be God. Only God could forgive sins. And yet Jesus says, go now, your sins are forgiven. So he has the authority over all these things. And we talked about how... Having the authority over this is important and crucial and vital to the gospel. That Jesus, who is the Word, whose words have power, who is the very gospel Himself, must have authority over all of creation. But we also talked about how that authority means very little for us if He does not care for us as well. We talked about how He cares for our circumstances. He, he does not disregard those. He cares deeply about what's happening around us. And indeed, we believe He orchestrates those things around us for our good. But we also talked about how He cares more deeply even about our inner struggles, our inner turmoil, our sins even that are deep within us. He cares about the spiritual man. But He cares about both. And we talked about just briefly, if I could bring this to your memory, 
It's when we don't believe that He cares that we begin to turn to idols. We begin to turn to other things to care for us, whether it's our own hands, our own abilities, or the abilities of another person. It's when we don't care or we don't believe that He cares that we turn to other things. And then we talked about how, the third week, about how Jesus' grace is both rugged and sacrificial. It's rugged. It's sacrificial. It's rugged in that grace is not this just overlooking of our struggles. It's not this overlooking of, of what is right and what is wrong. But indeed, the ruggedness of God's grace is that it confronts us in our sin. It doesn't shy away from this difficulty and how we as followers of Jesus should do likewise. We should not shrug away. We should not shy away from rugged grace. Speaking truth and love to people in brokenness and sin. Saying the things that need to be said. But it's also sacrificial. Jesus' grace is also sacrificial in that He lays His life down for us. That grace is a servant. Grace does not do to get back, but grace gives regardless of the merit or the doings of another. We saw that as Jesus was exhorting the disciples to not lord it over the Gentiles, but that to be in His kingdom, you must be a servant. These are all aspects of the gospel. And without all of these things, we have no gospel. These are all parts of sides, if you will, of the diamond of the gospel. So let me ask this question as we progress. What is the most pivotal moment in history? What is the most important moment in all of history? You know, the atheist might say the day those cells came together and formed the universe. The Muslim might say the day the prophet Muhammad came out of the cave with his first revelation from Allah. For others, maybe the most pivotal moment in history would be something tragic. Maybe like the terrorist attacks on 9-11. Or maybe for you, the death of a loved one. Maybe further personal events. Maybe like the day you were married. It's the most pivotal moment in history for you. Or the birth of your child or births of your children. Or maybe it's graduation. Or maybe it's the day you landed the job you've been working so hard for. Or maybe it's the day that you accomplished what you were hoping for on your sports team. What is the most pivotal moment in history? To a follower of Jesus, it is and must be always the most pivotal moment in world history and your personal history is the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you get up in the morning and you think about what is my life, what is it hinged upon? What is everything I'm going to do, say, think, be My existence, what is it hinged upon? What is it impacted by? What is it 
changed by and what drives all of these things in my life. If you're a follower of Christ, it must be the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if the cross is the most pivotal moment in history, then it demands that we live radically different. So with that in the back of your mind, we kind of tell some of the story leading up to the crucifixion here as we think about Good Friday this week and the coming of Christ coming into the city and then later will be crucified. You see the religious leaders as we've been looking at over the past number of weeks, they, during Jesus' time, had the biggest problems with Christ. They knew His teaching, influence, popularity was undermining their hold over the religious people. You can read extra-biblical examples of, of this. Much of these things taking place and recorded by historians like Josephus, who is not a follower of Jesus. But the leaders were threatened that their authority and their influence and popularity was going, was going down the drain, if you will, and Jesus' was on the rise, and they quite enjoyed their power. When we get to passages like Mark 11, verse 18, you don't need to turn there, but it says this, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, that being Jesus, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then in Mark 14, where we're at today, it was now two days, starting verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth, and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So what happened, what's happening at this point is all the dark planning of the Pharisees and the religious leaders is coming together here in Mark 15. What's interesting too, just to point out, that they, they even try, even, they're supposed to be the people who uphold the law. They're supposed to be the people who who keep God's commands, and yet when it comes to Jesus, they actually go around the Mosaic law in many ways to make sure that they could quickly and quietly deal with Jesus. So I just want you to see them, like we talked about last week, picking a portion of the law to highlight and disregarding another portion of the law, and we talked about how that's legalism. Let me quote to you from Dr. Aiken. He says this, In the case of our Savior... Not only was life unfair, his final hours were unjust and illegal. It is difficult to count up the violations of Jewish law. For example, though, in capital cases like Jesus', trials at night were forbidden. A charge of blasphemy could not be sustained unless the defendant cursed God's name. And then the penalty was to be death by stoning, not crucifixion. In Jesus' case as well, no formal meeting of the Sanhedrin ever took place in the temple, which was the proper location for a trial. So here, they, they, uh, we're going to keep these laws because these are the ones that are most convenient for us. We can get on top of these laws. But these laws over here, they're not convenient for us. And so the Pharisees move forward with deceitfulness and covetousness and wickedness 
and murder. And if you remember back what we read last week, Jesus is talking about what comes out of a man is what defiles him. And so what's inside often is these things like covetousness and deceit and hatred. And when hatred and these things come out, they fruit in actions like murder. And so what you see happening right before our very eyes is what Jesus says to the Pharisees is now becoming a reality before their very eyes. And what's astonishing is that these men are blind to it. Their hatred has blinded them. And now their evil hearts are on full display. The fruit has blossomed. It has ripened, if you will. And then in verse 43 and through 44, it says this, And immediately, while he was still speaking, that is Jesus, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And so they have come. They have come to kill Jesus. And as the moment in history goes, Jesus is taken to some ridiculous trial. He is beaten and will be led down the road carrying his cross for a time where he will be hung before all the world to see. This morning as we think through these things, I want to focus our time not so much on the events leading up to the cross but the actual moments on the cross. If you look in your Bibles at Matthew 15, or sorry, Mark 15, verse 33 through 34, we'll be here for the first part. It says this, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Aloy, aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With that, let's, let's pray and just ask God to bless our time. Father, may, may our hearts be awakened. Father, may our minds be enlightened. And may our hands and our mouths go forth in proclaiming as we leave this place this morning. Father, for your glory and our good, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now remember, we're asking the question, what is the gospel? The first thing I want you to see is the loneliness of the darkness. I want you to see the loneliness of the darkness. Jesus, it says, died in darkness. Matter of fact, it says for three hours there was darkness. This was not a solar eclipse since the Passover was held at the time of a full moon. Instead, this was a miracle. God was working a miracle, and He brought darkness over the land. Think back with me, if you remember, back to the plagues in Egypt. All the way back to Exodus, right? The ninth plague was what? 
a three-day period of darkness. Three days. Three hours here. And then the three-day period of darkness was followed by what? The death of the firstborn. The slaying of the lambs. So what happens in Exodus is the firstborn children of the Egyptians died because they didn't put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts, right? There was not a sacrifice made for them. The Israelites put the blood of the lamb across the doorpost, and as the story goes, the, the death angel came and passed over their houses but took the lives of the Egyptians first born and then as the story goes after this pharaoh sets god's people free right they are set free just as a side note in light of baptizing michael they are set free they begin this journey and what do they do they go through the water right they symbolically go through baptism in the red sea This death, this darkness followed by the death of the firstborn, that's what's happening on the cross. It was a cosmic sign of God's judgment on sin being poured out on His Son. That a substitute was dying in the place of a transgressor. And so the darkness is meant to communicate God's wrath is coming. God's wrath is being poured out. You see, the darkness was a sign that God had given His firstborn to die in the place of His people. And that His beloved Son, like a lamb, had given His life for their sins. What a picture. Jesus dies in the darkness. But Jesus doesn't just die in the darkness. Jesus dies in the darkness alone. He dies in the darkness alone. In Mark 14, Jesus shares his final meal with his closest friends. And he tells them that one will betray him. And that all of them will eventually abandon him. But back to verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Again, back to this darkness idea. It's literal and symbolic. Literal as in it really happened. Symbolic as in we talk this cosmic sign of God's judgment. But it also is a symbol, darkness in the scriptures is a symbol for things like chaos and disorder and separation from God. Darkness, it's like rejection, loneliness, disconnectedness. Isaiah 52, 14 says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is a prophecy referring to the the brokenness of Christ's body in the time leading up to and including the cross, that He would be so 
marred and broken. Here, he says, beyond that, beyond resemblance of a child of mankind. And Jesus is experiencing the darkness of loneliness and rejection. The worst there has ever been. The, wor- the, 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 the most intense moment of loneliness. I mean, think about you and I and our experience of loneliness and brokenness and rejection and and all those things, and those are real, not denying those. But none of us have experienced the loneliness and the rejection that Christ is experiencing in these moments on the cross. In Psalm 22, verse 1, it says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? This is David, the psalmist. Jesus, you know, David is like a foreshadow of the coming Christ. Here Christ says the same thing. Why are you so far from me? Why are you far from me, God? Listen, Jesus was not crying out at this moment on the cross because of the physical pain or psychological confusion or a dread of death. Listen, a very shallow study of the Trinity leads to us understanding that for all of eternity, Christ had enjoyed uninterrupted and complete joy in community with the Father. That His days were spent treasuring His Father in the Spirit and his father treasuring him, and his, his days were spent in peaceful bliss and warm-hearted fondness. Their days were spent creating, ruling, sustaining, and governing mankind and all of creation. And now, for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus knows experientially separation and forsakenness by God. He knows loneliness for the first time. Let me read to you from Tim Keller, Pastor Keller. He says this, This forsakenness, this loss, was between the Father and the Son who had loved each other from all eternity. This love was infinitely long absolutely perfect, and Jesus was losing it. Jesus was being cut out of the dance. Jesus, the maker of the world, was being unmade. Why? Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't a rhetorical question. And the answer is this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is this. For you, for me, for us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should have fallen on us fell instead on 
Jesus. He became the forsaken one for us. Why does, why does Jesus say, my God, my God? My God, I mean, think about the life of Christ, study the Gospels. How does he usually refer to, to the Father, right? The Father, right? My Father and I are one, and I do everything for my Father. Like it, He rarely uses the phrase, my God, my God. And why does he do it here? Let me quote Dr. Aiken again. He says, because in this one moment, in all of time and eternity, Jesus views himself and knows himself not as the Father's Son, but as the sinner's sacrifice. And Jesus would die alone, all alone, as the sinner's substitute. He would die in his place and her place. God separated from God. Who can understand such a thing? So Christ is forsaken. He's alone. The loneliness of the darkness. The loneliness in the darkness that was due to us. The next thing I want you to see is the devastation of the death. The devastation of the death. (coughs) (coughs) If you want to write, goodness, if you want to write down Romans 1, You can do that or you can go there with me. I'm just going to give a quick overview of a few verses here. In verse 18, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Then in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The worst thing, let's let's talk about the idea of hell for a few moments. The worst thing that God could ever do to you to me, to us, is to give us over to ourselves. To give us over to ourselves. You know, in our culture, and it's it's much in many churches as well, but in our culture, we have these ideas like, well, you just do you, right? You just do you. I'll just do me. Or you should be the authentic you, Listen, the authentic you, particularly according to passages like Romans 1, has an evil heart that doesn't want God. He likes the idea of God, but the idea of submitting and trusting God, it doesn't like that idea. Understand that God's wrath against sin is 
fully on display when he gives us over to our own passions. He gives us over to those things. I mean, think prodigal son. The father is giving him over for a time to his passions. Ecclesiastes, the same thing is happening. They're being given over. You see this all over, the, all over our culture and around us. The, think the murder of babies in the womb and now outside the womb. Is us, our culture, being given over to our idolatry of things like freedom? Freedom of choice, we say, they say. Or the decay in our culture of sexual morality. Is us, is our culture being given over to our idolatry of sensuality? But do you understand that, that, that this being given over can even happen inside the church as well? There's a sense in which we can be given over ultimately that we, uh, what comes to be displayed is that we were never a follower of Christ in the first place, but only giving lip service, just like the Pharisees. And so God gives us over to our legalism and to our self-righteousness, ultimately to be lived out for all of eternity apart from Him in loneliness and darkness. But He can also give us over to ourselves for a time that, that we might be rescued at the day of salvation. Like, be rescued before it's too late. That we would experience, like Ecclesiastes, that the end of our pursuit. But it can happen in the church. Do you understand, do you understand that even the blessings you think you're experiencing could be God giving you over to your own passions? Ah, oh, this is just going good in my life, and God is blessing me. How do you know? Maybe God's giving you over. Some test questions for that. Let me ask you, are those blessings leading you to treasure Christ more than anything else? Are those blessings leading you to humility? Are those blessings leading to deeper faith and repentance? If not, then those blessings are God's judgment on you. Giving you over to your idolatry. And if you're a child of His, it's so that you would be saved ultimately. But don't confuse the two things. Don't think just because things are the way I like them to be, and are even good, that that is God's stamp of approval on our lives. Do we understand that hell will be God giving you over to your empty and vain pursuits every day, getting up, trying to do the same thing and never succeeding? God basically saying, if you don't want me, then have it your way. If you don't want me, then be separated from me. There you go. And think about the devastation of this. Now we wander around half dead, living life, but spiritually in bondage and brokenness, walking in darkness. But again, another beautiful facet of the gospel. Jesus was given over 
for us. Jesus never wanted to be separated from God. He never wanted to have it His way. He always wanted to have it God's way. He always wanted nothing but perfect harmony with the Father and the Spirit. And yet God was willing to cast His Son out. And Jesus was willing to be cast out into the darkness for people like you and me. He was willing to be cast away from perfect community with His Father for you and me. And so, if hell is giving us over to ourselves, namely, separation from God, forsaken by God, and Jesus, even though He doesn't want to be separated from God, is willing to go there for us, Jesus goes through hell for us. Forsaken, separated from His Father. That is the devastation of His death. That He endures separation from God for you and for me so that all those who trust in this doing doesn't, they don't have to do the same. Rescued from forsakenness. He was forsaken so that we could be eternally embraced. Let me say that again. He was forsaken so that we could be eternally embraced. Here we come to much of the pinnacle of the gospel. His life for yours. You were not right before a perfectly holy God and nothing you and I can ever do could ever measure up. We could never balance the scales. And the more you search the depths of your motivations and stuff, you see how wicked our hearts are. I might do this good thing, but, but there's always this tinge of selfishness in there or this tinge of, of, of watching out for me. And There's always this tinge of, of sinfulness in there, even in our best moments. And Jesus paid for those too. Jesus paid the penalty for those sins. Let me encourage you, if you don't hear anything else I say today, believe and trust in Him. Believe and trust in Him. In Mark 15, 37-41, let's read. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed His last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing Him saw that in this way He breathed His last, He said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now pause there for just a second. What did... What did Mark set out to do at the very beginning? To prove that Jesus was the Son of God. What's just happened? This Gentile 
not a follower of Jesus. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Moving on, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The last thing I want you to see is the demand of the destruction. The demand of the destruction. What's destroyed? What's the destruction? The destruction is this curtain. The curtain is destroyed. It's ripped, indeed, from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top. That's important, but for another day. It's ripped from top to bottom. It's gone. It's destroyed. You say, okay, what's the, what's the point of this curtain? This curtain represents so much. At its core, it represents the reality that sin has separated man from God. That he is holy and we are not. The curtain between mankind and the holy of holies where God's glory dwelt. That curtain is ripped in two. We did a little bit of historical or Old Testament Stuff, right? they, the, the high priest would come into what's called the Holy of Holies. There is a, a curtain that kept other people out. And the, the priest had to go through certain rituals before he could enter into the place called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where sacrifices would be done on top of the Ark of the Covenant that, that held the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. And, and there were these angels that would look down over top, and it represented over top of the mercy seat. That's the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And what would happen is they would... It, res- it resembled or symbolized that as the priest would sacrifice on top of the Ark of the Covenant, that, that the angels or God would look down through the blood at God's people and see them, not in light of their brokenness that the law exposed, but see them in light of the blood covering, the shed blood on their behalf. And so this spot was was said to be the place where, where God's glory dwelt, where, where His presence was. And so they, in order, like, it was even key that the priest in his sacrifices and preparedness to, to walk into there, that he would have a robe and, a ro- and he would have j- bells tied to his, his robe such, and, and a rope tied to his foot such that if he went in and was ceremonially unclean and the ba- those outside the Holy of Holies would hear the bell stop jingling, They could take a rope and pull him out of the Holy of Holies because if they went in, they would be struck dead. God's presence demands holiness. And so what's happened, it's the important, what's happened is this this curtain has been ripped in two. There's so much illusion that is happening here. I want to give you three very quickly. One, it signifies the complete perfect and altogether sufficient sacrifice for sins that Jesus has offered in Himself on the cross. The complete, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice. The sin, the sin that made this wall between us and God, but both spiritually and naturally, has been paid for. The sin has been removed. That's the picture. Second, the second illusion in the destroying the, of the curtain is the end of the Mosaic Covenant and its laws. Now let me caveat that. 
These laws have all been fulfilled in Christ. That He keeps the covenant. He keeps the commands perfectly. What God requires. But the commands don't go away. The expectations of holiness don't go away. Oh, well, now we live under grace and we got Jesus. We don't need the law. That's not the that's a fallacy in our day. The law is still in place because it, it, it's an eternal expression of the Father's character and who He is. It's a tangible representation, if you will, of His holiness. But what has happened now is Christ has lived perfectly in light of the law. So what's been removed is the curse of the law Namely, the fact that the law points us and leads us to our need for God, but can't deliver us from our plight. So now that there has been a man to live perfectly, the dividing wall has been torn down for those who are in Christ Jesus. Three. The curtain being torn points to the fact that God in all His glory... God in all His glory is now freely and fully accessible to all men and women who come to Him by faith in Jesus Christ. Fully accessible to all men, all women. Again, you see before, only the high priest came into the presence of God, and everyone else experienced God's presence by proxy. Through the high priest, if you will. Through the fruits of the work of the high priest. God's glory was hidden from the world. Access to God was incredibly limited. For centuries, before the coming of Christ, God had confined the revelation of His glory and majesty to the Holy of Holies. But the blood of Jesus has made it available to all. And whoever is covered in His blood has access to God to see His glory and behold Him. We quote someone, Now He bursts forth to dwell no longer behind a curtain in a house built with wood and stone and precious jewels, but to dwell in the hearts of His people. Reminded me of this passage in Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. You see the picture here? By the new and living way that was opened for us through the curtain. That is, through His flesh. Jesus' flesh. And since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See the picture. This is what's happening on the cross. As the curtain curtain is torn into, God's glory comes bursting forth. Now the destruction also demands something of us. 
not things of us to earn our salvation, but because of our salvation, because of our belief in the saving work and the rescuing work of God through Christ on the cross, because of that, it requires something of us. It demands something and, and even empowers something in us. Three quick things. The first one's this. We must fight for unity around the glory of God in the blood of Christ. Fight for unity around the glory of God in the blood of Christ. Listen, our world unifies around all sorts of things, right? Things like political causes, skin color, music type, religion, social issues, economic class, etc., etc., Our world unifies around all sorts of things, but the people of God are united by one common thread that they have all been washed in the blood of Jesus and now given access to the glory of God. We have that. That is what unites us. We're no longer separated by preferential things. The gospel is for all people. So I think we need to ask the question, what are we really unified around? You see, it's easy in a church like ours to not know what we're truly unified around. We could be unified around lots of good things, but they could be substitute things. that we're, we're unified around these preferences instead of unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glory of God, access given through the blood of Christ. We could be unified around things like Matt's preaching. I don't know why, but his style, his delivery, things like that. Or the accompaniment, the style of accompaniment to the songs we sing or the children's ministry, or the way we talk about politics, the way we dress, the way we think about things like money. None of these things are necessarily bad, but the problem is, is are we called to be unified around, at our core, these things? No. Listen, and it's often not until we are pressed on these things or placed in a community with people unlike us, that we discover that our unity, or what our unity, is really all about. Our unity is around the glory of God through the blood of Jesus. The gospel. Two, so one, we fight for unity around the glory of God and the blood of Christ. Two, we are priests who stand in the holy of holies, covered in the blood of Jesus, pleading on behalf of others. Let me say that again. We are priests who stand in the holy of holies, covered in the blood of Jesus, pleading on behalf of others. We ask God to redeem those around us. We go to those around us and offer them the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because we are better than them, but because we are sinners just like them. This also means we need to have space for people not like us. 
to flourish in our communities. In our community. We have a hope to offer the world through Jesus. A hope that cares both for the external and ultimately the internal. And lastly, we are to draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We're to draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance. The, the curtain being torn in two is God saying to those washed in the blood of His Son, come. And it's Him saying, I'm coming to you. We're to draw near. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Listen, what good is it to have access to something and never go there? It's like a good idea that is never acted upon. Or it's like a beautiful painting in the mind of a painter, never to be put on paper and enjoyed by others. We're instructed to draw near to God with full assurance. Don't just come half come, come with full assurance because of the blood. So what is the gospel? Jesus speaks and creation obeys. Jesus' words have the authority to pardon sinners. And yet Jesus is caring and deeply loving in His authority. And it's God's rugged and sacrificial grace that reveals our need for a Savior and shows us the offer of this Savior. You see, it's the cross where we actually see our Savior saving In all His glory, Jesus takes on the sin that you and I have committed. The Father places it. He he imputes it to Jesus. The sin that separates you and I from God. God places that sin on Jesus' back. And then God in all His power and might pours out His wrath onto Christ and our sin satisfying His just requirement and payment for that sin. You see, in the gospel, you and I get grace. Jesus took the justice. Our brokenness, the brokenness that caused, it's caused by our sin. And for the first moment in time ever, Christ is forsaken by the Father. He's alone. He's in darkness. He enters into the chaos of sinful brokenness. And Jesus takes the wrath. He absorbs the wrath. He is our propitiation. He takes the wrath of God. That forsakenness, that loneliness, that devastation of death for you and for me. So that you and I would never have to face it. So that the Father could look upon us as His adopted children. As righteous and holy because of Christ. That when He sees us, the court trial is over. It's done. Declared not guilty. Because of Jesus, took our guilt. And it happened on the cross. The gavel came down. Jesus, guilty. And pardon for those who trust in Him. Now can't you see the glory of this? 
Can't you see the treasure that is yours? That is mine. Look at the gospel. Jesus dying for your sins. Taking your separation from God. And behold, O sinner, God's kindness, God's goodness. Behold God's mercy. Listen, we will draw near to God in full assurance when we treasure Jesus as our Savior. Let me pray for us. Father God, as we come to you today, Father, I pray that sleepy hearts would be awakened, that those who are followers of your Son Jesus, yet living as though He has not died on the cross and not raised again, Father, may, may you awaken those hearts. May, Father, may, may we see the glory of the gospel once again. May we see the goodness of your grace. And Father, for those of us who are walking in faith and striving to, to be faithful and striving to behold your glory, Father, may, would you give us clearer eyes to see, deeper affections to love, Father, would you rid us of the sin that entangles us in bondage? And Father, if there's anyone in our midst that doesn't know the gospel, they don't believe it, they're not resting in it, Father, may, may they believe today. Father, may you give them a heart to see that Jesus died for their sins. Father God, thank you for the chance to worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. Father, may we sing your praises this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.